Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 31, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. Joining me on a slightly buzzy phone connection this week is John Allen Paulos, New York Times best-selling author, professor of mathematics at Temple University, as well as columnist for abcnews.com. We talk about a lot of things, including mathematical storytelling. Here we go. Joining me on Strongly Connected Components today, I have John Allen Paulus, who is a New York Times bestselling author, a professor of mathematics at Temple in Philadelphia, as well as a columnist on mathematics at abcnews.com, and a fellow former Wisconsinite. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show today. Ah, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. One thing, uh, going through and, and reading some of the things that you have written, that really strikes me is that while most people know mathematics through, say, the technical lecture, getting uh, learning it at school, the thing that you seem to uh, specialize in is a, a sort of mathematical storytelling. Uh, what really convinced you that in, instead of telling it in the typical uh, way, that kind of telling it through stories would be a better way to teach people mathematics? Well, people, at least uh, many people, uh, find uh, storytelling much more natural. And not only that, the stories can be associated or uh, with some uh, something with which they're much more connected or much more interested. Or if you're talking about mathematical aspect of news stories, uh, something that has a, a, a news hook. So you've got the, the story element, the natural human curiosity, and or the news hook to motivate uh, the, the the mathematics. And often mathematical ideas can, can be uh, uh, gotten across more readily, especially to those whose formal mathematical training is limited, can be gotten across, across more effectively via vignettes, uh, stories, little scenarios, jokes even. One thing uh, when you were writing with the uh, for the New York Opinionator in a, a blog post called Stories versus Statistics, you actually also talk about how statistical language comes up very often in storytelling itself. Right. I mean, people uh, are always evaluating whether explicitly or not the, the likelihood of some event or series of events. The kind of focus is different. I mean, uh, you in storytelling, uh, you want to uh, suspend disbelief uh, so that you can get on with the story with appreciating the story, whereas in statistical uh, studies, you want to suspend belief so that you're not uh, hoodwink or hoodwinked or bamboozled by a particularly evocative metaphor that really has nothing to do with the, the underlying numbers. That, that kind of brings up the idea that yeah, I've definitely seen you write about before, and it's kind of the trick of precision that people, when they see numbers, even even without surrounded by metaphors, when they see numbers, they seem much more likely to believe something just because there's a number, a decimal point, and a lot of numbers after that decimal point as well. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, that's often a way to uh, distinguish, at least to some extent, people who have a, a technical, a math or scientific background from those who don't. Because if you cite a number that's very precise to someone with, uh, with a technical background, their likely response will be uh, <clears throat> skepticism or a bit of wariness, like, how would you get that to five decimal places? Whereas if you cite such a precise number to, uh, to people without uh, any technical background, uh, they're, they're often quite impressed. Wow, this person really knows his stuff. He knows it to four or five decimal places. I mean, they, and that happens all the time. You watch commercials, uh, you know, studies have shown this statin cuts heart attacks by 39.2% to 60.4%. I mean, that last number after the decimal point is probably meaningless, as is the one before. And uh, or you see things like you know 5,429,316 people suffer from Alzheimer's in the U.S. And of course that number is absurdly precise. I mean it's hard to even tell if a single if a given individual suffers from Alzheimer's and ver definitions vary. So to uh, come up with anything uh, as precise as that is absurd. It seems that this sort of topic, this inability for a lot of people to be able to recognize what a number really means or if it sh if the number should even be considered possibly correct is is pretty close to what you in uh, what you wrote on with your uh, New York Times best-selling book in numeracy now this was originally published in 1989 that's correct and it, what sort of i mean obviously it was received rather well it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 18 weeks what sort of uh, reaction did you get at that point as, as someone who wrote a popular book about mathematics? Well, I benefited from a spate of reports that came out at that time that uh, now become somewhat common, but at, at that point uh, they were kind of new reports uh, to the effect that American math students uh, don't fare very well compared to students in other countries. And so there was uh, much anxiety about uh, mathematical education. So uh, there was warrant to write about enumeracy uh, off the book pages. And then there was a kind of hall of mirrors effect on this show and that magazine and so on. By and large, the response to the book was, was quite positive. I, I'd like to think led to some changes in mathematical education, uh, at, at least at the high school level. But uh, many of the same problems that I wrote about there, I mean, people's inability to estimate numbers, their uh, un uh, discomfort with probability, with risk, uh, susceptibility to pseudoscience, uh, just inability to evaluate numbers or make a logical argument. They, they, these um, these issues are, are still of, of importance. And the, even when kids can do basic formal operations, uh, they, they don't know when, when to do one, when to do the other, how to solve simple problems, how to uh, think critically about the story they read in the news. In fact, uh, in the latter, I mean, uh, I'm teaching a, a general education course this semester, and I, <clears throat> I give problems such as the following. Let me just make one up. After the Packers' uh, Super Bowl victory, an exuberant Aaron Rodgers shook hands with everyone in the stadium, and most of my students see nothing wrong with that. You know, never thinking, well, there's 70,000 people in, in the stadium. Even if they all lined up and was very orderly, even if he shook hands with 20 people a minute, it'd probably take him more than a week. And it'd be the end of his uh, career. His hand would be so chafed. 
But nobody, I mean, not nobody, but students uh, or adults, for that matter, often take uh, numbers in a story as uh, not as providing information, but kind of as providing decoration. They don't interpret them literally, like, what could that possibly mean? <clears throat> Another example, I mean, I, I make up a, a headline such as, Experts Fear Total U.S. Housing Cost, the Sum of R Rents and Mortgage Payments Will Top $2 Billion in 2011. And again, uh, if I mention that to people, people uh, will often uh, bemoan the mortgage crisis and real estate prices and so on. And the $2 billion doesn't really register. I mean, there's 300 million people in this country approximately, so maybe 100 million households. So $2 billion divided by 100 million is $20 a year in either rent or a mortgage payment, which is absurdly small. But, uh, but again, uh, you know, people don't look at a number as representing anything real. It's just something that you decorate your sentence with. Now, it, that, it kind of brings up another thing I, I'd like to talk to you about, which is... You you just brought up uh, an example, including something with uh, football, another including the housing market. And that's something I, I definitely noticed looking through even just, say, your uh, Who's Counting column at ABC News. And that's the the sheer breadth of writing topics that you use. You write on humor, you write on religion, you write on sport. In, instead of, you know, just making up, you know, very regular there's two trains and they're heading towards one another one's traveling at this rate one's traveling at another how do you bring out the mathematics in so many different topics when you're writing about them well i i, I think i had a kind of anomalous uh, have a kind of anomalous background for uh, a mathematician i majored for a while as an undergraduate in english and philosophy and classics uh, physics kept coming back to mathematics but but as a consequence, perhaps I, I have a broader view of mathematics than, than do others. I'm interested in these other topics, and it seems, uh, I, and uh, mathematics itself is a kind of imperialist discipline. It can be applied to almost everything. Almost everything uh, can be looked at mathematically or has a mathematical aspect. So, um, and since most people don't have much of a mathematical background, and uh, mathematics is as I say, imperialist and important, seems like one should go to where people are, which is they know X, Y, and Z, but they don't know X, Y, and Z in a mathematical sense, but they, they understand the humor, they understand the stock market, they understand storytelling, and use those uh, interests as a kind of lever to get them to understand a bit of mathematics as well. Not only that, I mean, the mathematics helps uh, them understand these uh, other areas uh, with uh, a greater at a greater depth. I mean, it has enormously to use the term has consequences, and many of most of them are are quite bad I mean, political consequences. I mean, people get again to, to cite a very simple example, just having to do with numerical magnitude. People get bent out of shape by you know a few million dollars for some some project, some government project that has a kind of hot-button emotional appeal, either positive or negative, and remain oblivious to uh, the cost of the war in Afghanistan or the cost of a B-2 bomber. I mean, Planned Parenthood gets $350 million a year, and uh, none of that goes for abortions. I mean, that money comes from other sources. But people, as I say, get bent out of shape, think, uh, but think nothing of, you know, trillion dollars for wars and uh, for the war in Afghanistan, which 
arguably is uh, much less valuable. And really, it's arguably. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned in there that while you're an undergraduate, you spent time studying English as as well as philosophy, but you kept on coming back to mathematics. What was it from mathematics that kept uh, drawing you back in and then eventually propelling you to get uh, your PhD at the University of Wisconsin? Uh, well, I like the, uh, to quote uh, Bertrand Russell's famous phrase, I like the austere beauty of mathematics. I mean, it's just elegant and uh and cogent and uh, appeal to a kind of aesthetic sense. And it had more oomph, more content than other fields. And not only that, I was good at it. I was interested in philosophy. Uh, Bertrand Russell had been a childhood idol of mine, and I knew he was a mathematician. I was, in, I was interested in mathematical logic and probability in particular, both, both of which subjects have kind of philosophical resonance. So uh, I kept going back to, as you mentioned, to, to mathematics and and, uh, and that subject got my PhD, of course. And so around uh, 1995, I think you uh, you made a switch from writing typical math journal articles on, say, the logic and probability, which you mentioned you were very interested in, and then uh, you made the switch to writing more. Well, as to take a quote from, I believe it's your resume, things that lie at the border between the scholarly and the popular. What sort of reactions did you start to get from, say, your colleagues when you uh, do something like this? We, since the math academy is is very much set up as a, at least in a typical sense, sort of a publisher parish sort of situation. Well, most of, almost all my colleagues were. Uh... Yeah, or at least neutral, or uh, evinced a certain benign neglect, which is which is fine. I mean, there were a few, not not necessarily my university, but a few, uh, or maybe more than a few, uh, snide uh, comments about uh, writing for a popular audience and condescending to try to reach the poitoloi, for lack of a better term, which uh, seemed you know kind of un warrantedly elitist, and, but by and large, people uh, accept it. I, I mean, it's not every, it's something that every mathematician should do, but uh, it it seems like uh, I, I like to think it was a worthy endeavor. I mean, uh, to talk about the you know the influence of, or the influence of mathematics on all kinds of areas and uh, how that this uh, how the subject can impart a greater uh, understanding. And uh, another factor in in my kind of switch is that that doing formal mathematics, scholarly mathematics, is is difficult. It's very very difficult. And rather, I mean, I kind of almost made a conscious decision that uh, rather than banging my head against the wall and trying to get uh, uh, some wrinkle on some old result or developing some very obscure nuance on some you know uh, very minor theorem. I'd rather do this, what, I, what I've done the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, try to communicate with a, a larger audience. I mean, mathematics is, by and large, a young man's game, and I'm uh, you know, not as young as I used to be. That, coupled with inherent difficulty of mathematics, uh, suggested that I could do more good in general and for myself as well by uh, writing about 
mathematical aspects of stories in the news or the relevance of mathematics to the, the stock market, the, the storytelling, uh, even to religion. You have been writing the Who's Counting column now for uh, quite a while for ABC News. And I, I was, I, I'm just, I mean, admittedly, this is a bit of a, a personal interest question because that's the sort of thing that I would very much enjoy doing. But I was wondering, how does one come to write a mathematical column for a, a major news organization since it does seem that most major news organizations seem to have almost no interest in mathematics? That's a good question. I... I... Basically, they, they approached me after uh, my book, A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, came out and just su suggested that uh, I, I write such a column. And oddly enough, I mean, they, they give me almost carte blanche uh, to write about anything as long as there's some connection, sometimes quite tenuous, to some numbers or some mathematical idea, uh, election theory or... Some kind, of, some aspect of uh, a probability or or combinatorics or whatever, and as long as there's this connection, they basically let me write about whatever it is I want to write about, which I appreciate. And the column's been quite successful, so I guess other people do as well. You write this column. You have in the past also written a column for Guardian. You've written multiple books. Uh, you do. Uh, book reviews, you've written for the New York Times as well. How do you keep up uh, with the sheer amount of uh, of writing? How do you come up with uh, new topics to write about? How do you uh, actually just manage to publish so many different things? Well, uh, there's, uh, it's, uh, news keeps coming and uh, stories w sometimes with fairly minor variants keep keep developing and can take a slightly different tack. I mean, mathematics is, is a huge subject and uh, the world is an even huger subject. So that that's not uh, as difficult as it, as it might seem. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I make the same points over and over again, but pointing out these mathematical solecisms and misunderstandings is a, is a little bit like uh, like taking out the garbage. I mean, you can't just do it once because uh, it piles up again. Uh, you have to keep doing it. So uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it, uh, as I say, I, I make the same point different ways at different times from slightly different oblique angles, but I think that that's important because the, the, uh, the force is uh, pushing consciously or not, for misunderstanding, for obfuscation, are always out there. You mentioned uh, humor earlier on, and going through your writing, it's clear that, that you are uh, actually a quite humorous writer uh, when, when the uh, correct time to use humor comes up, and also in descriptions of uh, your talks, because you are a very popular as well as common public speaker, it seems. So do you, do you really think that use, uh, that being witty, that, that using humor is, is an important device when trying to talk to people, when trying to explain things, uh, is specifically mathematics, but also other science or topics that people don't typically have too much interest in listening to? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, I mean then there's a certain mathematical aspect to humor itself. I mean, uh, Mathematics is, is elegant and concise, and most jokes are as well, and depend on, most, many jokes depend on a kind of logical misunderstanding, a reductio ad absurdum, or iteration, or all kinds of quasi-mathematical techniques. 
but using humor more generally is important uh, when you talk about a subject that does scare people. And if uh, you write in a very earnest and dry manner, or if you're, uh, sometimes if you're excessively precise, I mean, uh, often there's a trade-off between precision and clarity. You can be totally precise and no, no one or few will understand you, if you are the mathematicians, or you can be very, very clear and sort of wrong, so somehow you've got to be sufficiently precise to be more or less correct, but not so precise as to uh, sacrifice clarity. And that's sometimes a difficult job. It's always uh, writing concisely. Uh, the columns I write are generally 900 words, and it's, and it's difficult sometimes to give a, a full treatment of any topic in that with that number of words, but there again, the ability to write concisely, sometimes humorously, or elegantly, with a certain elegance at least, is important. Actually, even that skill I try to impart sometimes to my students. I, um, I, I often require that they write, since I think writing is important, even in mathematics, and many of them don't think that that's the case. But one assignment, for example, that I give is to perform a certain card trick over and over again, a mathematical card trick, so that it's quite clear what's what's happening. And then the, the assignment is to write it up in good English, and if, if the student captures all the salient points of the card trick, they'll get a C, and with, given a certain number of words, and thereafter their grade is inversely proportional to the, to the number of words they use. More words, lower grade, fewer words, higher grade. And students often find it that uh, difficult, and it is difficult. I mean, there's a famous quote by, I'm not quite sure who, Anatole France or Proust or whatever, apologizing, uh, maybe it was Pascal, anyway, uh, apologizing for writing a, a long letter because he hadn't had time to write a short letter. But I think uh, concision is an important skill, I mean, especially in mathematics, and it helps one think uh, clearly as well, which is, presumably one of the things that the study of mathematics is uh, supposed to foster. Well, thank you very much. It has been an absolute uh, pleasure having you on the show. I appreciate uh, the interview. It was a pleasure talking with you as well. And that is all the time there is for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. I want to thank you very much for listening, and I do wish to apologize for the slightly bad recording this time around. We do the best that we can, it's just sometimes the recordings are not absolutely perfect. If you have any feedback or perhaps want to suggest a guest for the show, send an email to samuel at acmescience.com. Also, make sure to check out acmescience.com where you can find links to more information about today's guests, as well as information about our two other podcasts, Combinations of Permutations, The Irreverent Mathematical Talk Show, and Sam and Dan and a look at 80s science fiction movies. Both of them are pretty good and you should probably check them out. The theme music is The Pie Song from Hard and Firm and the outro music is from SP12 who you can find over at opsound.org. This podcast is a Creative Commons Attribution share-alike licensed podcast. So you could do a lot of things that you can uh, put on the internet as long as you credit us as where you got the audio. So once again, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope that you stay tuned to the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. Goodbye.